Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20, plus you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. I would like to thank Dr. Bob Turner. He sponsored this episode. So, Dr. Turner, I hope you enjoy it. The Suris River is one of the most important rivers in southern Saskatchewan and Manitoba. It provided an avenue for transportation for the indigenous, explorers and fur traders, and many important communities have settled along it. In this episode, I'm looking at the Suris River region, focusing on Manitoba's side of the river that extends throughout southwestern Manitoba. The river itself was created 10,000 years ago when there was a rapid draining of the Regina Glacial Lake that created a channel through which the Suris River now flows. This drainage basin would leave fertile silt and clay, aiding future settlers thousands of years later. The indigenous used and lived along the river for thousands of years as well. It provided them with ample food, fresh water, and other materials they needed, including fur from animals. It was where the bison would stop to drink, allowing the indigenous to harvest the creatures. It was also a highway for travel through the region and towards Hudson Bay. Today, the Suris River goes through Treaty 1 and Treaty 2 land. Located south of Melita, there are two very important sites in the terms of indigenous history. The first is the Brockington National Historic Site of Canada. This site on the east side of the Suris River consists of a thin crescent-shaped strip of land that has shown three different periods of habitation by the indigenous dating from 800 AD to 1650 AD, just as the first Europeans began to arrive in the area. At this site, there is evidence of bison drives, indigenous remains, and traces of occupation. At the lowest level of the site, there is also evidence of a bison pound and processing camp. It is not known which indigenous group used this processing camp, but is believed to be the earliest occupiers of the site. In the oldest level, there is a huge array of tools and bones, as well as arrowheads. The top level and most recent period of habitation shows evidence of an unknown plains indigenous group who likely came from the Dakotas. The fact that the site has three different periods of habitation, it allows modern historians to see the cultural changes that occurred over the course of almost 1,000 years. This site was made a National Historic Site in 1973. 
Located nearby, there is also the Linear Mounds National Historic Site. This site consists of three burial mounds spread over a large area of land. Dating from 900 AD to 1400 AD, this site consists of complex constructions of soil, bone, and other materials. The wealth of artifacts found in the area have helped researchers glimpse life on the Great Plains at the time, long before the arrival of Europeans. In 2018, an archaeological find revealed that the indigenous of the area practiced farming prior to the contact with Europeans. It was at this site that modified bison shoulder blades were found along the creek bank and it's believed those bones were used as hoes for gardening by the indigenous that lived there. This makes Melito one of the only two sites in Manitoba with evidence of pre-contact indigenous farming. Around 1497, an oak tree began to grow in the area, and it would eventually become a historic tree for the area. Over the course of the next 600 years, the tree became known for offering an aura of spiritual peace to visitors, and it became a celebrity of sorts in the area. And while its age is hard to prove, it's believed to be the oldest known standing tree in the entire province. In 2015, it was one of the first three trees in Manitoba to earn a heritage tree designation. When the first French explorers arrived in the area, they would name the river the Surus because they felt its track from a vantage point resembled that of a mouse. The first European who was given credit for seeing the Surus River was Pierre La Verinier, who was exploring for the French, attempting to find a water route to the Western Ocean. In his travels through the area, he would establish a fort where present-day Portage La Prairie is located. He would also visit with the indigenous and as he crossed the plains came across the Surus River. In his journals and maps, he called the river the River of the West or La Riviere de l'Oust. More European fur traders would start to come into the area in the 1770s and roughly 18 forts would be established along a river as it was such an important transportation route for the indigenous. The fur trade would continue to thrive in the area up until the 1860s when Canada began to look towards settlement of the West and away from the fur trading. Settlement would go slowly in the area, beginning in the 1880s and progressing well into the next century. Prior to 1882, the community of Surus was known as Plum Creek. In the Journal of Alexander Henry, written on July 14, 1806, he writes, quote, Riviere la Surus, at the junction of Plum River, which comes in from west-northwest, we crossed it and kept along the north side of the Riviere la Surus until sunset, end quote. The first settlers in the area are generally considered to be Gilbert Wood and his family. They left Kingston on June 15, 1880 and came to the end of Steele on June 22, 1880. They then journeyed by boat and cart until they reached the area of Plum Creek. That same year, William Squire Soden had also arrived, and it would be he that would create the community known as Surus. On October 7, 1880, Soden and Samuel Murner, the MP of New Hamburg, Ontario, wrote their intention to create the new settlement, stating, quote, We propose to take next spring into this township 500 settlers. They will be a very different class of people from that composed of ordinary emigrants from Europe. They will be people who will be possessed of such capital that, on the average, each one obtaining a homestead and preemption entry will purchase in addition 320 acres of railway lands and will be in a position to successfully farm the whole area he acquires. End quote. In 1881, various parties from Ontario journeyed out to settle in the area, and Surus began to grow. By the end of the year, the community had a log blacksmith shop, a store, and a boarding house. In 1883, the mill was built in the community and would prove to be a very important industry for growth in the community. 
There's also a bit of folklore behind it, related in the Leader Post in 1962, which states, quote, An immensely powerful man near Carnduff who carried a sack of wheat on his back over 90 miles to the Cirrus Mill, and then on the return journey carried not only the flour, but the bran, a side of bacon, sugar, and other supplies, end quote. Now I'll talk more about Soden later, he is generally considered to be the founder of Cirrus. In 1890, the railroad arrived in the community and Cirrus was well on its way to becoming an important community within the region. Around this same time, the community of Sipiweski was growing with a store, two banks and various houses. The railway also arrived in the community in 1890 and that same year it changed its name to Wawanisa. One year later, the first school was built in the community and by 1909, the community was large enough that it became a village. On July 1, 1882, residents from across the area came out to a place just south of Future Maleta to celebrate Dominion Day with a large picnic. The spot was also a stopping spot along the Boundary Commission Trail. Over the years, the stopping point would be used and turned into a park after the land was donated by Norman Gould, who always allowed the annual Dominion Day celebrations to be held there. The site also holds special significance as it was there that surveyors with the British North American Boundary Commission camped in 1873. One year later, the Northwest Mounted Police camped at the same spot on their journey out west. Today, the site is the Surrisford Park, a recreation and heritage area in a quiet grove right where the Antler River meets the Surris River. The 8-hectare site is also a municipal heritage property. At the property, you can find a large memorial arch that was built in 1829, as well as an 1885 log house and a 1.5-story field house that was built in 1902 by Alfred Gould. So what about the name of Melita? When the first settlement began, which didn't last long, it was called Manchester. In 1884, when the post office was opened, the local settlers were asked to suggest a name. They suggested Manchester, as that was already the name of the area, but they were told the name had already been chosen. A list of names was sent for the settlers to look at. One Sunday afternoon, the lesson during Sunday school was St. Paul's Shipwreck on the island of Malta, or Malita. Everyone felt this was a good name, and it was also a name on the list, so it worked out for the community, and it was chosen. In 1873, a young woman named Nellie McClung would be born in Chatsworth, Ontario. She would move with her family to the Surrus Valley area to Homestead, and she would have a massive impact on Canadian history. McClung would receive six years of education, but would not learn to read until she was nine. As an adult, she would campaign for the Liberal Party in 1915 and 1916 for the right for women to vote. She would organize the Women's Political Equality League, holding a mock parliament to criticize the fact women couldn't vote in Manitoba. And Nellie McClung decided that she would put on a mock parliament down in uh, the uh, Walker Theatre. Nellie McClung was a very colourful uh, sort of speaker. An unusual thing, uh, having a woman that could go about and address an audience anywhere. It just happened that my mother and I were visiting in Winnipeg at that time. And so I was able to be at the uh, mock parliament that night. And my recollection of it was that Nellie McClung uh, moving about as uh, the premier and the women sitting on the platform as the members of the house and uh, they were uh, deciding whether they should allow men to vote or not. Were men really capable? Wouldn't they go out and make fools of themselves? Uh, they'd, they'd just vote against what women wanted probably. and. Uh, 
uh, it would be disastrous to business and everything else. And uh, uh, it was it was uproariously funny. I remember the laughter of the audience more than I remember what was being said, because uh, she had really uh, made a caricature of Sir Rodman Roblin that would be uh, pretty difficult to uh, uh, to repeat. And um, it had such an effect that uh, it, it was said uh, afterward that it had more to do with the defeat of the Roblin government than when they went to the province the next year. Thanks in no small part to her efforts on January 28, 1916, Manitoba became the first province to give women the right to vote. By this point, though, McClung had moved to Edmonton. In 1921, she was elected to the Alberta Legislative Assembly as a Liberal, serving until 1926. In 1927, she became one of the famous five who put forward the person's case to have women classified as persons under the British North America Act of 1867. In 1929, their case was successful, and it would clear the way for women to be considered persons in Canada and to sit in the Canadian Senate. On behalf of the Canadian Federation of Business and Professional Women's Clubs, I now unveil the tablet which the Federation has erected in honour of the five women whose names it records. We now introduce one of the five women, an author, a well-known speaker, and the woman member of the Board of Governors of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, our own uh, Mrs. Nellie L. McClung. <laughs> Madam President, Mr. Prime Minister, fellow Canadians, I desire to thank the Prime Minister and the President too for their kind words. And I thank the Prime Minister still more for the kindness he showed to our little petition when it was just a little scrap of paper going the rounds and not very welcome any place. I also wish to thank Newton Wesley Rowell for his kindness in taking our petition to the Privy Council. And I also wish to thank Lord Sankey for his glorious decision. <laughs> so clear-cut and unmistakable and unanswerable. I would like very much tonight, dear friends, if I could express the corporate mind, not only of the five of us, but of all the people who have advanced the cause of women by ways seen and unseen, the great unnumbered, the unremembered and unknown people who have done so much for us, the people whose names will never appear in the papers, people whose names we will never know. Because it has been a long task, it, was a, it has been an epic story, this rise of women. They had to begin from so far down. Women had first to convince the world that they had souls, and then that they had minds, and then it came on to this matter of political entity. And uh, the end is not yet. <laughs> we fear that there are still people who would sign a minority report. Now I do wish to pay my tribute of love and admiration to the other four women whose friendship I enjoyed and treasure for their loyalty, for their love, and for their steadfastness, for their wonderful companionship, Mrs. McKinney, Mrs. Muir Edwards, and Mrs. Parlby, whose message you will hear just in a moment. And particularly, I wish to give my tribute of praise to our undaunted and indomitable in incomparable 
leader, Emily F. Murphy. She didn't care who got the honor. She was never one to care who got the vote of thanks. She would joyfully pin a medal any time on somebody else. And you know, dear friends, I can't help but saying it now that we're all here together, that we would all be able to accomplish a great deal more if none of us cared who got the credit. And tonight, if she is listening from some of the islands of the blessed, I'm sure that there is no person who will hear the words of this ceremony with a lighter and a merrier heart. McClung would pass away in 1951, but she would be heavily honored after her life in Canada. In 1954, she was named a person of national historic significance. In 1973, she was honored with a stamp, and the person's case was recognized as a historic event in 1997. In 2009, she and the other of the famous five were made Canada's first honorary senators. Also, in the 1990s, a Heritage Minute was created to honor her. Why women want to oh, vote? really? The first time Nellie McClung saw the Premier vote votes for women... Things are changing. Good day, sir. It didn't go too well for McClung. Take it from me, Mrs. McClung. Nice women don't want the vote. So then she staged a mock parliament attacking votes for men. Think what would happen if we actually allowed men to vote. Why, they would become obsessed with politics. Politics are like drinks. Once you start, if men started voting... After a long campaign, Manitoba's women became the first to get the provincial vote. The next time they met, in a polling station, it didn't go too well for the Premier. Premier Roblin, I'm sure you don't want your photograph taken with a woman who's not nice. In 1890, the railway was coming through southwestern Manitoba, and a town site was surveyed, sparking the beginning of the current community of Melita. The community soon began to grow from that point. By the autumn of 1890, there was already two stores, a post office, a blacksmith shop, a harness shop, an implement agency, a stable, a doctor, and a school, along with four houses. The Yogelvies Milling Company, Lake of the Woods, and Northern Elevator Companies all opened elevators in the community at the same time as well. The Ogilvy's elevator would actually outlast the other two until it was finally replaced in 1956. In 1899, a woman named Edna May Bauer was born in Wawanisa. She would eventually become a teacher and worked at the Mayfair Elementary School in Saskatoon. In 1929, she married a young man by the name of John Diefenbaker. A popular teacher, thanks to her outgoing nature, she would devote a lot of her energy towards the political career of her husband. She would travel with him to visit communities in the area, edit his speeches, and even drove him to meetings. She also worked with him to overcome his shyness and help him become more of a man of the people. After Diefenbaker was elected to the House of Commons in 1940, she worked in an unpaid capacity for him and was always in the visitor's gallery in the House of Commons. The Vancouver News Herald wrote, quote, She loved Parliament. She liked its people. She had friends on both sides of the Commons. She admired Prime Minister Saint Laurent, and she never tired of hearing her husband speak. End quote. Sadly, in 1951, she would pass away from leukemia, and many of the members of Parliament gave eulogies for her, something that was unprecedented for a non-member of Parliament. Six years later, thanks to her hard work, Diefenbaker became the Prime Minister of Canada.
1903, a man by the name of Captain Hunt Johnston Rolston Large would arrive in the Surus area. Well-liked in the area and known for his kind heart, he even saved the life of a man who had become tangled in the wheel of a threshing machine by calmly taking out a heavy hammer and breaking the large wheel to free the man. Of course, what Captain Large is known for is his boat. In 1908, he took a CPL boxcar, he tore it apart and used the lumber to build the boat, along with the lumber from an old house and a donation of lumber. Propelled with a large one-cylinder gasoline threshing engine attached to two side-wheel paddles, nine feet in diameter and made of steel, the boat showed off the master craftsmanship of Captain Large. He would call his boat the Empress of Ireland, and it launched on the Surus River in 1910. One person allegedly said, Do you expect that to float? Captain Large responded by painting a line on the hull, and when the boat went into the water, the water level went up to that line. A Mr. Mallow was also hired to steer the boat along the river, while Captain Large would sing songs and play on his banjo to the delight of passengers. In 1912, he decided to use the ship to haul coal, and he changed the name to the Assiniboine Queen. Sadly, one year later, the ship went to the bottom of the river during a terrible flood and torrential rains. Captain Large, a legend of the area during his time, would then go back to eastern Canada in 1914. A portion of the paddle wheel from this vessel can actually be found at the Surisford Park I mentioned earlier. In 1904, the first Surris swinging bridge was constructed by Squire Soden, who was hoping to improve access to town from his land on the east side of the river. This was not the first bridge built across the river by him. He had built a bridge in 1882 that lasted a few years, and he would charge 15 cents per animal to use the bridge. Overall, the bridge has been reinforced several times, in 1907, 1961, and 1974. The first bit of work in 1907 was done through the help of private donations from local residents. By this point, the bridge was famous enough that it was actually printed on a postcard in Toronto. The bridge would have many difficult years, though. In 1912, floodwaters took out the decking of the bridge. In 1961, a cable break destroyed it, and it was soon rebuilt. In 1976, it was destroyed by a flood and rebuilt again. In 2011, another flood damaged it, and the decision was made to rebuild the bridge once again. In 2013, the current bridge was constructed, costing $3.9 million. The bridge was moved to a higher level over the river to prevent it from being destroyed by floods ever again, and the new bridge is capable of lasting for the next century. The bridge stretches for 184 meters across the river, and it's the longest swinging bridge in Canada, and today the bridge can hold over a thousand people. The bridge has now become the most famous landmark of the entire area. In 1911, work began on the Surus Dominion Post Office in the downtown core of the community, it was one of six post offices built by the federal government in various Manitoba communities before the start of the First World War. The post office was designed to be a tangible national symbol of progress and stability of the young country of Canada and to house communication services that were vital for a rural community. Due to the importance of the building, which continues to stand to this day, it was made a municipal heritage site in 1991. That same year of the post office being built, another historic building was constructed. The F. Soden House, constructed with views of the Swinging Bridge, was constructed in a fortress style and quickly became a landmark of the community. The home was built for Fred and Maud Soden, the son and daughter-in-law of the aforementioned Squire. The home was built to resemble the castles of the youth of Maud from her days in England and India. The home, which continues to stand, would become a municipal heritage site in 1990. The 1920s was a time of another interesting moment in the history of Maletta. 
During this era, criminals from North Dakota would come up to Manitoba in order to ply their criminal trade, likely because enforcement was less than the United States. Melita found that out firsthand on September 23, 1922, when six bandits stormed into the Union Bank of Canada in the community and robbed it. They had gagged and bound the engineer of the electric light plant next door and then forced themselves into the bank and placed two sleeping clerks under guard. Using four charges of explosives to force the vault door open, they were surprised in their work by Reverend Thomas Beveridge, who came over to the bank, which was closed at the time after hearing the commotion. Told to stay away, he refused and he was shot four times. The fourth shot hit him in the foot, wounding him. The men then ran from the bank with $7,000 or about $108,000 today. Many citizens in town would say that the robbery was the crudest they had ever seen and the robbers made no effort to hide their faces or even remain quiet. The only thing they had done was cut all the telegraph and telephone wires to the community. One month later, Edward Shearer, a noted Winnipeg criminal, was arrested in the United States, but the American government would refuse to send him back to Canada, stating that the evidence was insufficient for extradition. Melinda would have a very important visitor arrive on September 19, 1936. It was on that day that John Buchan, the Governor General of Canada, came to the community on his way to Brandon. The visit was quite brief and very informal. The Governor General was especially interested in the formation of the Buchan Forks Circle in the community. The day was also made a holiday for the children of the area, something they were all very thankful for. The society had been formed in 1934 in order to bring people to the Buchan District, and it would last well into the 1970s. Around the same time, or at least a couple years after that Governor General visit, a young girl would move from a small hamlet at the U.S.-Canada border to Malitter with her family. And while her name is quite known around Canada, her son would become arguably one of, if not the most famous, Canadian in history. Her name was Betty Fox, and during her childhood through the late 1930s and into the 1940s, she would live in Malitter. Of course, her son is Terry Fox, the Canadian icon. Betty would have quite the life herself, though, and is well known for her support in developing the Terry Fox Run and the creation of the Terry Fox Foundation. She would take the lead in many parts of the organization. Over the course of her life, she would speak to more than 400,000 schoolchildren, touring the country for 25 years to talk to them about the Marathon of Hope. Every speech she gave, she would end with the phrase, Never ever give up on your dreams. In 2010, she was selected as one of the Olympic flag bearers for the opening ceremonies of the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics. She would also carry the Olympic torch with her husband Raleigh during the 2010 Paralympic Games. And on June 17, 2011, she would pass away from diabetes. Her funeral was so large that the Civic Recreation Centre had to be used and was broadcast live. British Columbia Premier Christy Clark would also attend. If you'd like to learn more about the history of the Surus area, then the Plum Museum and Visitor Centre is the perfect place to visit. This museum is located in a church built in 1883 that is the oldest remaining public building in the area, and it's been restored to its original plum and chocolate colours. It is also one of the oldest church buildings in western Manitoba, and it's a municipal heritage site. Within the museum, you will find exhibits that highlight the history of the area, including the Swinging Bridge. There's also a beautiful outdoor area you can enjoy that features a moose statue and landscape grounds, and it's well worth any visit to the Surus area. I hope you enjoyed that episode on my look at the Surus area of Manitoba. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. 
As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.